0: Thank you so much for joining us again. There's almost nothing worse in the life of any church, I would think, than dealing with a serious conflict. And sometimes the most serious conflicts can even start with a relatively minor issue that ends up exploding. But my next guest says, you don't have to dread conflict in your church. Dr. Michael Hare has been helping churches recover and even grow from conflict for more than 20 years. He's served as a senior pastor in church turnaround ministries for over two decades and serves as a senior staff chaplain and ombudsman for Compassion Today, we'll be discussing his book called, When Church Conflict Happens. Michael, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much.
1: Great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Well, sure. You point out that every church has conflict, and I have no doubt that's true. But you also say your church needs conflict, which I think is interesting. How would you say that that's the case?
1: Well, I think that conflict is um, certainly normal and natural. We see it all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Um, all of us know we have conflict at home, at church, at work. Um, I believe the difference between healthy conflict and unhealthy conflict has a lot to do with uh, the attitude of especially church leaders and how they um, receive and engage with conflict. Conflict is uh, creates opportunities for issues to be clarified. And oftentimes when we ignore or avoid conflict, issues just remain unresolved and things get worse.
0: Oh, There's no doubt about that, and yet you distinguish among the different facets of church conflict. You talk about unhealthy conflict, benign conflict, and healthy conflict. What would you say are the differences among those three categories?
1: Well, of course, uh, unhealthy conflict I think most of us are familiar with, and that's when we we sometimes avoid until there's polarization and then the conflict escalates emotionally and it's not dealt with in a way that is uh in alignment with scripture where we esteem others better than ourselves and and um and consider it all joy when we fall into different trials and tribulations in other words there's a theology i believe that uh kind of fr- creates a framework for for healthy comf- conflict and anything that falls outside of that that's damaging to relationships or churches is um, uh, unhealthy. Yeah. Um, I talk about benign conflict and benign conflict and is something that's not dealt with very much in the literature. Uh, there's a lot of books on conflict resolution. Benign conflict is the term I use for conflict that is um, it's not intentional. It's um, usually caused because of uh, my book deals a lot with organizational conflict in the church. And a clear example would be, let's say you have two staff members and they have overlapping job descriptions, and neither one of them has, uh, uh, has read the other person's job description, but because they're not well written, both feel responsible for some of the same duties, and they feel like the other person is transgressing into their space. Okay. And there was nothing intentional necessarily about that, but it puts Christians that would not otherwise be in conflict in conflict. And so when there's no malicious intent, it's not intentional, it's, just, it's the result of either ignorance or negligence or poor planning or poor organization, then that's benign conflict. Healthy conflict is when we recognize that God has purpose in everything that happens in our lives, and he does indeed work all things together for good to those who love him. And we look at it as an opportunity for people to exercise their gifts, which are diverse, in a way that that maximizes communication. And, and, and strengthens the church instead of damages it.
0: Right. What have you seen in terms of bad responses to conflict? What what seems to be the most prevalent type of bad response when there's some form of conflict in the church?
1: I would say um, avoidance is the primary one that allows things to get escalated. But, but you know, re- responding, I should say reacting, out of um, kind of our emotional, our old nature, um, kind of fight or flight uh, type response, instead of being uh, trained up in godliness where we step back a little bit, not allow our emotions to get hijacked, and ask the Holy Spirit for guidance and for wisdom in trying to understand why the Lord would allow this kind of disagreement, and then... um, and then engaging in a a Christian manner to find good solutions Um, that characterizes healthy conflict.
0: Right. So now when you're talking about avoidance, which I know exactly what you were saying there, where somebody just, there's a problem, but I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to make waves and I don't want to have any sort of confrontation, that kind of thing. But it is the case, it seems at least anecdotally, that if you do avoid a problem, it's not as if the problem goes away. It can be way worse because now you have somebody holding it in. You have a chance for an outburst, that sort of thing. Would you say avoidance... Is, in your experience, more of an issue in the church leadership or among the laity, the people in the congregation? How have you seen it play out, this avoidance problem?
1: Well, let me say first that um, if we look at the Lord Jesus, of course, as the perfect example, there were times when he avoided conflict. And so sometimes avoiding conflict can be okay. I think the key is to know when and to allow the Holy Spirit to, to, to lead us. There were other times like when, well, uh, his avoidance, for example, when he would slip out of the crowd because his time had not yet come, or there were other times when he ran the money changers out of the temple in a very confrontive way. Yeah. And so um, I think avoidance is something that um, does typically, I think it's, it's not just church leaders, it's, it's all Christians, I think, and, and maybe certainly beyond Christian circles, some people's personalities are such that they just you know conflict is just very very um distasteful to them but i think with christians we feel often that we we shouldn't have conflict True. because we are yeah. Christians. Right. And, and that tends to cause, a, cause us to avoid engaging in a healthy way or in any way until our emotions get out of control.
0: Well, and it would seem that sometimes people will avoid conflict because they've had a bad experience, either with the person with whom they have conflict right now or somebody else. And they say, well, I don't want to confront and talk about this because it's not going to go well for me. H- how do you advise people through that kind of reluctance?
1: Um, usually i in the book addresses this. I talk about spiritual gifts, and there 's even a survey in the book that 's a spiritual i 'm sorry a conflict uh, style survey that allows people to kind of assess where their uh, normal response to conflict is and And I think as we look to the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, we can see that that there are a number of different ways in which conflict is responded to in a godly way, sometimes avoidance, sometimes confrontation. Um, you know, I think of two verses. One one verse says, it is a glory to overlook a fault. And then Matthew 18, of course, says if you if you have problems with a brother or sister or they have problems with you, you know, there's a responsibility to confront. Yes. And so I think, you know, spiritual gift assessments can also help. Uh, but to begin to see that uh, the differences that exist between us are resources, not just threats. In other words, someone else has a different uh, set of spiritual gifts than I do, then God has actually given them those gifts and not given them to me. Hmm. And that interdependence within the church is God's design. And if we can step back and, and say, you know, this person has different insights from God than I might have you know, normally, and I should listen. Yeah. And we should bring all of those perspectives to the table so that we make sure we don't overlook uh, anything. And I think sometimes you can encourage people through spiritual gift assessments or those kind of things to appreciate the differences instead of see them as uh, something, uh, you know, a threat.
0: I actually think that's a great point, and I hadn't really thought of it in that way before, but certainly when you have Christians with different gifts, you might have, for example, someone who has more of a gift of helps or hospitality who says, we're not doing enough to really bring people together and help them out or have enough potlucks or we need to do more in that area. You know, Maybe we should change things around and we can't see things like that as a negative, but, but really deal with that. That's a great point. We're going to pause for a quick break. Dr. Michael Hare with us when church conflict happens. We'll be back on January effort today. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International. She's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a bible believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty Health Share, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty Health Share is a non-profit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. We are back on Janet Meffer today. Glad you're here and glad to be talking with Dr. Michael Hare, author of When Church Conflict Happens, a Proven Process for Resolving Unhealthy Disagreements and Embracing Healthy Ones. We all could use less conflict in our churches, I'm sure. I mean, that's one of the things, Michael, that really strikes me. Of all the horror stories I've heard Christians tell me, sometimes the church fights are the worst because they end in terrible hurt feelings. But the Fruit of all that can sometimes be people become bitter toward God simply because they had a fight in their church. And do you see that when you are hearing stories about church fights, that it goes beyond what it should have ever been to in the first place, extending even to people's view of of how God sees them when they have a conflict?
1: Absolutely. I think we've all known people who have left the church because of a conflict and never gone back. Yes. And that's another reason, uh, actually, that I wrote this book, was to try to help church leaders recognize that um, when they create an environment where people can actually disagree in healthy ways and see it in the framework of God's design, um, you know, and find the root causes, that's one thing I've not mentioned so far, is... You know, any kind of conflict first surfaces in our interpersonal relationships. But there are many causes to conflict that are not visible, and uh, my experience has actually been that in 90% of the cases, uh, there's a structural or organizational component or something that's invisible um, at first, and so if if we just attend to the conflicts that are on the surface, we uh, even if we get reconciliation, let's say relationally between church two church members or leaders, unless that root cause is discovered, and that's addressed in a healthy way, the conflicts will just continue and probably get worse.
0: Well, right. So, how do you nip conflict in the bud before it becomes a huge problem? What would be some suggestions there?
1: Well, I, again, so many, so much of this depends on how we. It's kind of a worldview situation if in a theological one. If we take God at his word, uh, we could look at passages like James chapter one, where James says, count it all joy when you fall into various temptations and trials, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. Then it says, let patience have its perfect work. And the picture there is literally you're in a, a frying pan and it's getting hotter and hotter and everything about you wants to jump out. And God is saying, I think, in, in many circumstances, I, I need you to stay there and, and let me purify you. And I, I think conflict, and this is another reason why churches need it, creates environments for us to grow spiritually that can actually strengthen relationships and strengthen the church as a whole.
0: Right. That's very true. That's true. And what you said, I think, is is important for people to understand when you cited that 90 percent of the conflicts can be tied to some extent to organizational or structural issues. Is that what you're talking about when you mentioned a few minutes ago, for example, the two employees who might have kind of nebulous job descriptions and so they end up having a conflict over whose job is what simply because somebody didn't write the job description in the right way?
1: Correct. And, and you can get those two people to sit down and um, kind of make nice to each other, but if you haven't solved the underlying structural problem, the conflicts are going to come back.
0: Right. Now, what about the issue of conflict that comes from sin? You had mentioned Matthew 18. And I mean, specifically, if there is sin in a, you know, a church member's life, and we know that passage says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they won't listen, take one or two others along, et cetera, et cetera. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. How much do you emphasize the obedience to Matthew 18 in the churches where, you know, you're going to have a problem with people. People don't want to have their sin dealt with in that kind of a way. But on the other hand, if you don't deal with it, you're, you're really not being faithful to Scripture either. H- how do you advise churches on, on just a Matthew 18 situation?
1: Well, I'll give you an example. I um, was working in a church up in New England, and um, there had been a culture of, of gossip where people, and I think our American culture is very much entrenched in that, in social media and so forth, where if we have something negative to say about someone, instead of going to that person and trying to deal with it in a healthy way, we talk to others about it. Right. And, and and that's gossip. And, and so in this church in New England, I can remember standing up in the pulpit on a Sunday morning, uh, after being invited to do so, of course, and, and just presenting a what we called uh, a covenant. Um, and it was, it was challenging the congregation. When somebody comes to you and starts talking negatively about someone else, um, you know, direct them to Matthew 18 and direct them back to the person. Yes. And if they seem reluctant for whatever reason— Offer to go with them, but don't entertain gossip. And if somebody refuses to be obedient in this way, then they need to be, uh, you know, dealt with in the appropriate manner, which could go all the way to church discipline. Right. And and it creates a, really a culture shift in this particular church. That church culture was transformed by that. And the people, the few people that didn't obey and cooperate with the covenant were eventually, they either left on their own or were disciplined out of the church, and the and the church culture got much healthier.
0: Wow. Well, now, as to the group conflict, this is something else that you talk about in the book. When you're dealing with group conflict, that can be a little bit different dynamic than interpersonal conflict, but what sorts of problems have you seen arise between groups? You know, this committee, that committee, this group of staffers, or this group of people over here, and they have different things they want done, and they don't like the other people doing what they want to do, is there a particular way that group conflict can be managed in a church in a good way?
1: Absolutely. I think the, the principles that are found in Matthew 18 um, certainly are the same ones that can be kind of uh, uh, transposed into the group situation so that, for example, if um, if there's two groups that are not getting along, two, two departments or two ministry teams, whatever it is— um, usually the conflict will surface first in, of course, interpersonal conflict. And uh, if the church leaders are uh, kind of on their toes and, and, and spiritually attuned, then they don't just look at that as an interpersonal conflict. They'll actually look at it and, and ask the question, is there more involved here than just this conflict between these two individuals? And then um, Matthew 18 actually is a picture a scriptural picture of what we normally think of as mediation and arbitration. So if you have a problem with two people and they can't resolve it, that's negotiation. If you bring somebody else in to help, that's mediation. If you take it to the church, that's arbitration. So the world is kind of taking that over and not giving God credit for it. (laughs) But the same principles work with groups where you can actually through interviewing and listening find out what the root cause is, pull those teams together and use a process that I call facilitated problem solving in the book which is very similar to mediation, it's just a slightly it's adapted for groups and it, and it can create a healthy environment in which to solve group conflict.
0: Now, do you, when you're talking about that, is it generally advised that the pastor should be the one to pull the groups together? Is the pastor always the person who should be facilitating the reconciliation when there's a conflict of that sort?
1: Not necessarily, although the pastor certainly should be on board with whoever's doing that work. In the book I present, uh, um kind of a structure for creating reconciliation teams we call them church health teams and um and training people in the congregation to do that work but it's all certainly under the authority of the church the pastor the elders whatever the the church government is and and blessed by that occasionally certainly the pastor is In the the most ideal position, especially if it's a church-wide conflict, to um, try to facilitate that. But I don't think there's anything wrong at all with some people are much more gifted uh, spiritually and naturally, uh, you know, to help reconcile conflict and bring uh, peace. Than you know, I mean, you take somebody who's got the gift of prophecy and somebody who's got the gift of mercy. They're going to have very different perspectives. Yes. And both can receive training and build skills, but it's real important to use. Those complementary skills in a in a team, if if you can, in a in a larger church.
0: Well, that's true, and also the pastor can be right in the middle of the conflict as well. I mean, I've been in scenarios like that throughout my life, where the pastor actually is part of the main group that's in a conflict, and that you know then it's going to necessitate other people. But you you know you have this option, don't you? When you talk about mediation, you you actually do have groups that can help churches if they need help, and and even at the denominational level for a church. Church that's in a denomination. Sometimes there can be outside help, right?
1: Yes. Yeah. You know, some some denominations do a great job with that. Uh, some just aren't really uh, trained for it, and they they do their best. But if they're not really following biblical principles, they can make it worse. And True. and so you know, uh, I, I work with an organization called Living Stones Associates, and we we've worked with you know cross denominationally helping churches resolve conflict. So, if there's not a resource, I mean I really do encourage churches to try to do this internally without outside intervention because I think that 's the healthiest and that 's one another reason I wrote the book. I think the book actually presents the tools necessary to help churches do that on their own. but if they need outside help, you know certainly they can look at their denomination and see if there's uh, help there. But I would recommend that they kind of do a background check and and look at the history and see if those denominational resources have been successful in other churches. And if not, maybe look to an outside consulting group.
0: Right. Well, Well. as you say, and really the premise of your book is that it's not that you won't have a conflict in your church because you will have a conflict in your church, even if it's a small one or it could be a huge one. But the point is, there is a way to deal with church conflict when it happens. That's the name of the book, When Church Conflict Happens. Dr. Michael Hare with us. Michael, it was great to have you. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Well, God bless you and thank you for the opportunity.
0: Absolutely. God bless you too. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. We are back on Janet Beffer today. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. We enter into marriage by making vows to one another, not the least of which is the pledge to stay together until death do us part. But how do we create a happy and lifelong connection with our spouses along the road of life? We're gonna talk about that now with internationally known psychologist and award-winning author, Dr. Kevin Lehman. His latest book, The Intimate Connection, Secrets to a Lifelong Romance. And so good to have you here, Dr. Lehman. How are you?
2: I'm good. I mean, tell you the truth, I only got married because I got sick of finishing my own sentences.
0: (laughs) Yeah, who wants to put up with that? We'll proceed. (laughs) How long have you been married?
2: Uh, 51 years in a row.
0: All right, you've got the chops then to give us some guidance on all of this. Because, you know, this is one of the things. You have people who are getting married in their early 20s thinking, I'm so in love, this will last forever. And then when they turn around and the romance doesn't feel so romantic anymore, they say, "What did I make a mistake? What do you say to those couples about the expectations and about what they don't understand about marriage?
2: Well, first of all, they don't understand that and I've asked this question hundreds of times when you walk down the flower strewn aisle, how many people got married Two. and people look at you and say, duh, two.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Like I just did. I go,
2: duh, how about six? (laughs) And they say, well, where are you getting the six from? Yeah. Well, you marry your in-laws Yeah. and you either reap the benefit of what happened in that family, uh, particularly in the relationship between the groom and his mother and the bride and her father. And so, you know, we all live in la-la land a little bit, I guess, especially when it comes to to such things as marriage. And uh, uh, most people don't understand that uh, marriage isn't easy, but it is simple. There's a simple paradigm that helps you get through it. And you really have to understand who the heck you married. Yeah. And, um, and I remember as a young groom sitting there with my, no, on my knees knocking, and my wife is a very pretty woman, and, and I remember just thinking what a lucky dude I was to be sharing life with her, and there she was with her little bouquet of flowers, and we spent $29 on the flowers for the entire wedding, if oh, you can imagine. Wow. But underneath that uh, little bouquet, Janet, there was a rule book. And I didn't really understand that until we were married. And I figured out, wait, a minute, this woman's got rules. <laughs> and uh, she's a firstborn, so you can imagine she's got all kinds of rules. And I was the youngest child, and I have very few rules. And it takes a while to get behind each other's eyes and see how they see life. And the question is, if you're married, do you really, if you love this woman, if you love this man, will you really, find out what his or her needs are. Will you do your best to meet those needs? That's a good starting
0: point. Well, it is. I, I'm intrigued by what you said when you say that you actually see a marriage of six people because you have the in-laws as well as the married couple. What have you seen in your experience as far as the effect of your family of origin on how you are acting in your own marriage? What sorts of issues your family of origin tends to bring up in your own marriage? What What are your overall thoughts on that whole issue?
2: It's huge. I mean, it's it's as good a predictor as anything. You can be in love. You can fall in the tinglys. You can talk about moonlit walks and <laughs> reading poetry to each other and praying with each other, whatever. But if you grew up with a critical father, let's start with that, and I'll pick on you women. Uh, you have a critical father who gets bought a flaw at 50 paces. Uh, do you think that you paid for that in your life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't that one of the reasons why you're a procrastinator
3: mm-hmm.
2: and why you don't finish things and why you start off great and then die like a a tired horse in a long race?
3: Wow.
2: And people don't get that connection. Yeah, yeah. And uh, mother-son, I mean, did that boy grow up with a a mom who could spot a, fought, a flaw at 50 paces as well? And I'm telling you, it takes a toll. The, the little boy or little girl you once were, I got news for you. I know you're of age and you're married, but that little boy or little girl you once were, you still are. He or she is lurking in the background. And it all comes from the relationship or non-relationship you had with those primary people in life.
0: Yeah. But what do you do about it? For example, if you have, you know, we did it this way in my family. This is what we do. We celebrate on Christmas Eve. Well, we celebrate Christmas on Christmas Day. I mean, those sorts of issues you can work through, but the <laughs> deeper, you know, you think anyway, hopefully yeah, you some can
2: work people through. are still battling those Yeah, issues. that's true.
0: Uh, that's true. I shouldn't have been so dismissive. But when you talk about the really fundamental, big, huge problems, if you had a spouse who grew up in an alcoholic family, for example, and there are all sorts of issues that your spouse might have because of that experience, how do you move past that experience to be able to have a healthy marriage on your own?
2: Well, you have to take a stand for marriage. Uh, you have to become one. I, I mean, that's one of the funniest things that God ever came up with:
3: hmm.
2: is the two shall become one. Because the Creator, I mean, he's the one that made you women so weird.
0: I agree. and and, and he's
2: the one that made us men so strange
0: (laughs) true I mean there's
2: your husband ladies he's watching two ball games simultaneously (laughs) eating a pizza belching in his boxer shorts and playing on the phone
0: don't forget that part
2: this is your gift from God (laughs) I mean I'm laughing as I say it but you know uh, men and women uh, uh, if you look at a woman's needs and this is where I go to. God was so smart because he made us I think Work toward becoming one, because women love affection. Mm-hmm. They love communication. Mm-hmm. Those are one, two, in my mind, of a woman's needs. And the third is commitment to the family, if anybody's curious. Um, ask yourself, how good is a man, <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face, with affection? Mm-hmm. Most of us are not great at that. Most of us are not great communicators. Right. Women are the wordsmiths. They use three and a half times the number of words that we men use <laughs> in a given day. But how many women know that when they ask their husband a simple question, that that husband actually hates the question? Hmm. And he hates the why word. Women love questions. Yeah. They're like the inquirer.
3: Yeah.
2: Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> but not us men. We specialize in arm's-length relationships, and our needs are much more direct, quite frankly, that we want to be needed, we want to be wanted, and we want to be respected. Well, if you figure that out as a young bride, you're going to do well. If you figure that out as a young groom, the flip side of that, you're going to do well. But to answer your question, with all that baggage in your background, you have to be a couple. In other words, Uh, Well, so many people today are in a blended family. The first time around didn't go too well. And I always tell them, if if there's an inch of light between your shoulders, your own children will bury you.
0: Hmm. You won't
2: be successful in marriage.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's really an important thing, and, and the sex differences will always be with us. I, I think we also run up against a, a cultural problem, which I know is not lost on you, Dr. Lehman, but we have a culture that is constantly telling us we deserve to have our needs met. And so we oh, have yes. to be very proactive in telling our spouse what, what what I need, what I need, what I need. But there is... You know, something that we understand as Christians is there has to be a certain selflessness in which we are serving one another. None of us do it perfectly. Some of us do it very badly. How do you work through that, the (laughs) mindset of saying, okay, fine, I need my needs met, but I also need to meet her needs or I need to meet his needs as well as best I can?
2: You know, we've gotten so smart in 2019, we're downright stupid. True. Let me give you a simple example. My wife, I call her Mrs. Uppington
3: because
2: mm-hmm. she's the firstborn <laughs> and she's the classy one of the two of us. And she'll say things like, you're not going out like that, are you? <laughs> and I'll say, yeah, I'm going out like this. What's the problem? You got a big spot in your shirt. Well, you just convinced me. I only got one spot. I'll be back in an hour. <laughs> I, I can... mean, we're different. <laughs> yes. and if she says to me, yeah. Lee that's her affectionate name for me, Lee I need a hug, so I I, I close my computer, I go over and give her a hug. You know what she's thinking? Hmm. She's thinking, well, he hugged me all right, but he only hugged me because I asked him to, Hmm. and not because he really wanted to. Yes. And in this book, what I've tried to do is make things painfully simple. Um, When a woman says to her husband, do you want to stop for ice cream? Gentlemen, listen to what I'm about to tell you. She's not asking a question.
0: (laughs) Hang on a second, Dr. Lehman. We're going to pause for a quick break. Dr. Kevin Lehman, The Intimate Connection is the name of the book. We'll come right back on Janet Meffer Today. Every day we make choices, but when a young woman with an unplanned pregnancy has to choose between the life or death of her baby, this will be one of the biggest choices she will ever make. This young mom came to a preborn center under pressure to terminate the life of her 22-week-old baby and was offered choices. When I sort of started talking with Carolyn, she was helping me decide what I can do, like giving me options, that there's just not abortion. After meeting her baby on ultrasound and receiving the love and support she needed at a pre-born center, this mom had a heart change. Right here you can see this is the outline of her face. Her hand is right here, her arm and her leg. I was so shocked. I was really happy. I couldn't believe that I have a little child in me. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in America, introducing moms to their preborn babies. For $140, you can help rescue five babies' lives. And now through a match, your gift will be doubled. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty Health Share, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty Health Share is a non profit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT.
2: You're listening to Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's Janet.
0: We are back on Janet Mefford Today. What are the secrets to a lifelong romance? We're talking with Dr. Kevin Lehman, best-selling author, about his book, The Intimate Connection. You were saying something, I think, that was quite good, Dr. Lehman, before we went to that last break, about when your wife asks you if you want to go out for ice cream, it's not really a question. This is simple, yeah?
2: so funny, but it's so true uh, that... Again, this goes back to the relational nature of a woman. She is so nice and thoughtful. She puts it into question form, keeping in mind men don't even like questions. Is <laughs> would you like to stop for ice cream? Well, no. What she's saying, gentlemen, is I want Jamocha almond fudge now. <laughs> and so you really part of learning the. I I love women. I, at a party, I can sit or stand in a corner with four women and talk with them. And uh, I'm I'm really good at understanding how women think and feel. But that was an acquired uh, skill. I was dumb as mud. I mean, I, I arranged a surprise party for my wife's birthday. Well, I mean, I wrote the birth order book and I can tell you that firstborn children basically don't like surprises. They are planners, and they are organizers, and they're a little on the driven side, and I mean, I paid for that surprise party for about two months, if I remember right. Wow. She was not a happy death.
3: She so didn't like it. Y- y-
2: you have to know who you're leading, and, and you know, my experience has been women love it when we stand up to the plate and be the men we need to be, and I've often told couples, can you pray together audibly? And you'd be surprised the pushback I get on that.
3: Hmm.
2: Um, that's a tough one for a lot of couples. And, and I always ask them, I say, wait a minute, D- does Almighty God look at your ideal self or your real self? The scripture says he even knows the hairs on our head. Yes. And so can you not sit with your bride and say, honey, can we just pray tonight and you take the lead, gentlemen? I'll tell you, for most women, if they really love God, If you want to turn on a woman, gentlemen, listen to what I'm saying. Do those kind of things. Be the dad you need to be. Uh, Be a good listener without judgment. I mean, women, women are talkers. You know, they most, again, to most women, think of what you're going to say, divide it by 10. Don't ask them questions. Avoid the why word, and you're probably going to hit pay (laughs) dirt.
0: We can't avoid the why word. We just, we can't. (laughs) It's almost
2: impossible. I realize that. But here's, let me not leave ladies hanging on that. If you want your husband to talk to you, now this is worth the whole book, okay? Mm -hmm. Learn to say to your husband, honey, could I ask your opinion about something? He will talk your ear off. Hmm. Every man will give you his opinion. But if you ask a question, all the defenses immediately go up and he shuts down.
0: Interesting. So what? What? as a man, why is it that men don't like being asked questions? I, I think probably a lot of women are wondering about that. Why don't you like, okay, I just asked a why question. Give me some grace here. But wh- why don't you like questions? Why don't men like questions?
2: Well, for the same reason that we're driving and we're lost. <laughs> yes. And, and your wife knows you're lost and you know you're lost, but you won't pull over and ask for directions. Why? And every woman I've ever asked that question says, oh, it's a macho thing. It's beneath him and all that. Well, that's probably partly true. But the real reason is he does not want to let all those cars and trucks get by him. He works so hard to pass. <laughs> so, so, so. See, us men, we're we we've still got that protector in us. We feel. I think we feel easily threatened. Like we have to have the right answer.
3: Hmm.
2: It's not easy for a man to say I I'm clueless. I don't have an idea. Um, and so, again, I, you know, fifty one years married. I can tell you, I'm still learning. There's times I get. I just cannot understand. Why she does some of the things she does? I took her to New York. I was on Fox News recently, and there was a Nine West—I think it's Nine West—shoe uh, store. Oh, great! Oh boy! Uh, so I took her there, and I was there for two hours. I walked around, looked at some other shops, hung around, didn't bug her, didn't say, "Hurry up! When are you going to get something?" She came out after two hours, with not a shoe in sight, <laughs> Janet. And she said, "We need to go to Soho." <laughs> And I said, Soho, that's way at the end of Manhattan, so what do I do? I get a cab, we go to Soho, uh, $35 later, and uh, she finds a place called Sam Edelman. Oh yeah. And so she goes into Sam Edelman, she's in there about an hour and 15 minutes, and she came out beaming, (laughs) beaming. She had... Uh, I know her shoe size. Ask men if they know their wife's shoe size. Nine and a half, narrow, and um, she—it was like she won the lottery. Yeah, she had two pairs of shoes.
0: Yeah, well, that's a hard—that's a hard know, size to fit, Doctor Lehman. I mean, every woman knows that.
2: Well, I'm trying to be more woman. <laughs> as I, as I grow older, but it, it mystifies me. The joy that can be in her heart because she found two pairs of shoes.
0: Yeah, we like shoes. Yeah, we do. And
2: all, all I do is roll with it, but it's part of saying to my wife, Mrs. Uppington, honey, I care about you. This is important to you. Uh, I got your backside. Let's go do it. Do That's I think great. it's stupid? We're on a radio show. I don't think I'll finish
0: that sentence. <laughs> Wise move. Well, three hours in a shoe store is a long time, even if you're a woman. I will say it that. It really is. Yeah, it's a long time. So you get points for that. What about what you said earlier, though, when you say that women really love men to step up to the plate? That's a mixed bag as well. Because men can walk into that. I know my husband can step into a problem sometimes with me. I want you to step up to the plate, but if you step up to the plate more than I wanted you to, then I I get annoyed. I mean, <laughs> oh, you,
2: you are so smart, Janet. <laughs> oh my goodness, and the, bingo! Uh, a, a woman wants a husband who understands what she's up against. Okay, if you have young kids, I mean, early in our marriage, we had three kids fairly close together, and then we had a surprise and a shocker at age 48. Hmm. And uh, I remember I was with the little kids all day, and my wife went to a thing at church, all day, woman's thing, okay?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And she came home, and Janet, I can still remember seeing her shadow appear, and I looked at her I said, you're home, how many days have you been gone? Hmm. And and she said, days, what? She said, and she looked at the family, and she said, what happened in here? I said, "Don't give me any of what happened in here bit. I cleaned this room four times today." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as a man, once you walk in a woman's shoes, uh, you understand how delightfully relational these creatures are that God's created.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so the smart man acknowledges, in words and deeds how appreciative he is of her contribution to the family. Again, none of this is rocket science. No. And today, I mean, people get married today. Uh, most people live together. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sign books in churches all across America. I'll ask a question: How many years you've been married? And they'll say, Well, we've been together 12 years. Uh, married um, nine. This hmm. is typical. I mm-hmm. mean, we're just we're approaching marriage in a very cavalier. It's all back to shoes. It's like, I'm going to try these shoes on, see how it goes, and then I'll figure it out.
0: Yeah, not cool. Yeah, that's yeah. not good. I agree with you. Now, on the flip side, that, that's so good what you're saying about how to understand your wife, know what she's up against. What, what would be the one piece or the best piece of advice you would give to a wife on how to make your husband feel needed, wanted, and respected? What would be a really practical way of expressing that to him?
2: I would use words of admiration to your husband especially in front of other people. Mm. Because I, I say with tongue-in-cheek, ladies, think of your husband as a four-year-old that shaves. <laughs> he, is, he is such a, a simple creature w- compared to you. Um, he tends to be a much more a creature of a habit than you are. Mm. And so figuring out what pleases a wife, most men like a little road map. Do this, do this, do this, and everything's going to. Uh, and that's not how women are. Mm-hmm. Women are much more. Again, I have beaten that term relational to death, but it's true.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so you have to get behind her eyes, see how she sees life. But it, but as a woman to a man, if, if when you say kind things about your husband in front of the other people, that's like a seal out in Monterey, California, sitting on a rock, and someone just threw, threw him a three-pound fish. Wow. Wow. And he'll clap his little clappers together and let check this out ladies your husband actually wants to please you yep and i think if you if you're a believer in almighty God and uh, then you really do want to please this woman and you realize what a great human being she is the mother of your children right your bride right what could be better
0: oh for sure well dr kevin lehman the name of the book the intimate connection always good to talk to you dr lehman really appreciate your being with us great advice
2: you're welcome janet
0: all right god bless you thanks a lot for being with us thanks for listening to janet Meffer today as always we appreciate you very very much we'll see you next time